Good morning. Welcome to Hiawatha. We're glad you're here this morning. And uh, I do not have my clicker, so you'll have to advance the slides. So, welcome. We are currently in the second week of a six-week series on sex, gender, marriage, and the gospel. And as was stated earlier, this week's sermon is on marriage. So, Let's jump into that. Genesis 2 and Ephesians 5, selections from those chapters are going to be our text. And if you were here last week, you know Genesis 2 was also the main text for last week. In talking about these topics, those first three chapters of Genesis have a lot of important things to say. But first, some introduction and then a little encouragement. There are going to be things in this sermon that are hard to hear. So we want to start with encouragement. So when we get to some of those more difficult things, we remember the encouragement from the beginning. But first, introduction. I'm, my name is Jesse. I'm one of the elders here at Hiawatha. And part of being an elder is we get the privilege of preaching a couple times a year. So I'm excited to be doing that. But if you know me at all, you may be a little confused or a little puzzled or at least a little curious that I'm the elder preaching right now because I am not married. And there are four other elders and they are all married. And next week's sermon is the Sermon on Singleness, which Chris Wachter, one of the married elders, is going to be preaching. So you might think to yourself, why would you not have a married elder preach the Sermon on Marriage and a single elder preach the Sermon on Singleness? And no, it wasn't a scheduling conflict or something like that. This is intentional. And the reason we did this is because in preaching, we'll use personal illustrations and things like that to help connect the message to what's going on in day-to-day -day life. But the message that we preach is founded in Scripture. It's founded in what God has done and in His Word. And because of that, even though I'm not married, I can still preach on marriage and preach to married people because I'm preaching God's Word, not just my own experience, not just my own life story. So that is why I'm up here preaching this morning, to show that when we preach, the power ultimately comes from God. He's the one, we'll see in a minute, who designed marriage. He's the one who created it. It was his idea. He knows marriage better than any married couple in this room knows marriage. He knows men and he knows women better than we do. So that is why. And then second, the encouragement. I don't have these verses on a slide, but two verses from Proverbs. The first one, whoever finds a spouse finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Houses and wealth are inherited from parents, but a spouse is from the Lord. So keep those things in mind. If you're sitting here this morning and you're married, your marriage is a gift from God. Your spouse is a gift from God. There are other gifts we get that are inherited from people. Houses and wealth, we can get those inherited from parents presents from friends and other things like that. But a spouse is ultimately a gift from God. If you are married, you have received a gift from God. And you have found favor with God. And that's true whether right now your marriage is going wonderfully and you're in a great season of marriage, or whether your marriage is very difficult or even on the rocks right now. If those things are true, marriage is still something that is a gift from God and you've received it from him. So keep that in mind, and I will come back to that and reference that uh, a few times when we talk about some of the more difficult things to hear in this sermon. 
So we're going to talk about two things. We're going to talk about what marriage is and then what marriage looks like. So we're going to look at Genesis 2 and God's creation of marriage and see this is what marriage is. And then we're going to look at Ephesians 5, and that'll show us a little more. This is what marriage looks like kind of day-to-day for people who are married. So first, the design of marriage. And I'm going to, Spencer preached on this last week and did a wonderful job. Uh, And he preached basically 18 through 23. And so I'm going to summarize 18 through 22 real briefly. And if you want to hear more about that, if there are things I say you think, oh, that's interesting, I wish he'd said more about that, listen to last week's sermon. And Spencer did say more about it. And then I'm going to talk more about 23 through 25, which is a little bit about, more about marriage. So 18 through 22 is some background and context. So, first, Genesis 1. You see this pattern throughout Genesis 1. You see it six times where God creates and says it's good. So there's this pattern of God saying, let there be blank. Let there be light. Let there be the sun, the moon, and the stars. Let there be different things. So God says, let there be, and then it'll happen, and it'll say, and it was so. And then God will look at it and say, and God saw that it was good. So this pattern of let it be, it was so, and it was good. So you see that repeated throughout that first chapter. Then you get to Genesis one twenty-seven, where God says, let us make man in our own image, in the image of God. Uh, and then it says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And we see from that both men and women are created in God's image. It's not just men. And that God created it. He designed it. And you can think of Genesis 1.27, think of that as a hyperlink. And if you click on that hyperlink, what pops up in a new window is Genesis 2. You read that verse, it's like, oh, that sounds interesting. I sure would like to know more about that process of creating men and women. Well, you can. You click on that, you get Genesis 2. So you've got this pattern, and God creates. And then, in Genesis 2, in this expanded view of marriage and creation of man and woman, After God's created Adam, but before he's created Eve, Adam obviously is without Eve. So he has no other person as a companion. And then verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. It is not good. And after reading Genesis 1 and hearing over and over again, It is good, it is good, it is good, we see a break in the pattern. It is not good. And remember, this is before sin. So this is not, it's not good because sin exists. This is before sin. There is something that is not good. What is it that is not good? That the man is alone. And this is a man who had perfect relationship with the world and perfect relationship with God, and yet there's still lack there. And so what's God do? He says, I will make him a helper fit for him. God identifies the problem, and he says, I'm going to fix this problem. And you think, great. So verse 19, he's going to create a woman. Nope. Verse 19, now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and all the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. This seems like kind of a weird addition, kind of a weird aside. Like, okay, God identifies this problem, he's going to fix it, but then he pauses to have Adam name all these animals. That seems a little weird. But it's not random, and it's not just one of those things God says, oh, I forgot to do this, we'll just do this right now. 
What God's doing here is heightening Adam's aloneness and heightening Adam's awareness of his aloneness. If you go back to Genesis 1 when God creates the animals, before he creates Adam and Eve, he creates them, and then he blesses them and says to the animals, be fruitful and multiply. So he creates animals, male and female pairs. So when Adam sees these animals parade by and names them, he sees two things. One, he sees, oh, there's two giraffes. There's one giraffe and there's another animal that's like it, that's a good partner for it, a good helper for it. Why don't I have something like that? He sees one lion parade by and there's another lion with it and he says, oh, there's two of them and they're like each other. Why don't I have someone who's like me? So he sees that over and over and over as he names all the animals. But also he sees that none of those animals are a fit helper for him. He starts to recognize more and more there's an aloneness. There's something I'm lacking. Well, maybe the giraffe can fill that need. Nope. Maybe the ox can fill that need. Nope. Maybe the eagle can fill that need. Nope. So he goes through all of this. There's no helper fit for him. So his aloneness now has been heightened. His awareness of it has been heightened. And he realizes even more than before that there's something that is not good. And now, verse 21, God's going to make good on his promise to make, uh, to make him a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Notice in these verses, God does everything. Adam's asleep during the whole process. God doesn't come to Adam and say, okay, so you need a helper. Why don't you give me some ideas? What are some things you'd like to see in this person? What are some things you'd like to be present there? God doesn't ask Adam for advice. He doesn't get Adam's opinion. He puts Adam to sleep and makes a woman all by himself. Look at all the things it says God does here. It says he caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. He took one of the ribs, closed up the place with flesh, made the woman, brought her to the man. God is the act of one here. He's the one who does everything. And so then he brings the woman to the man, wakes Adam up. And then verse 23, Adam's response. And this is his response just from seeing Eve. So they haven't sat down and had a conversation yet. God didn't sit him down and say, okay, let me explain this whole marriage thing. Let me explain male and female. She's walking towards him and he sees her and they're both naked. And just from that, from seeing her, here's his response. Just from that, he recognizes this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Seeing her walk towards him, he realizes she's like me. She's like me in ways that the giraffe isn't, in ways that the eagle isn't. But she's different too. She's not identical to me. There are differences, interesting differences. Verse 24, therefore, therefore, because man and woman are bone of bone and flesh of flesh, because they're made of the same stuff, because they are God's answer to the problem of human aloneness, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is short, it's only three verses, but in these three verses we learn a lot about marriage. Not a complete picture, but we learn a lot. <clears throat> Let's go over some of that stuff. First in 23, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. God's design for marriage is men and women, they're of the same stuff, they're like each other. 
In so many ways, there are similarities. They're fit for each other. They're designed to be with each other, to complement each other. But the second half of 23, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. They're not identical. There's difference there too. There's a ton of similarity. But there's differences. They fit each other. They complement each other. But they're not identical. There's some uniqueness there. Verse 24. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. What do we learn about marriage from this? One, that marriage becomes your primary human relationship. So you leave your father and mother. Now that doesn't mean you never have contact with other people that you shut your family out of your life, your parents out of your life, your friends out of your life. But those relationships that may have been primary are no longer primary. Your primary human relationship, if you're married, is with your spouse. And if it's not, that's a problem. That's unhealthy. That's, a, that's something apart from God's design for marriage. Also, it says he holds fast to his wife. There's commitment there. There's steadfastness. This is, marriage is not something that you just enter into and you go about it for a little bit and then you realize, oh, I actually married a sinner. That's a problem. There are issues with you and there are issues with me and because of that, there are issues in our relationship. Well, maybe I'll move on and I'll find someone who's a better fit. No. Hold fast to your wife. Hold fast to your husband. Commitment steadfastness is a part of God's design for marriage. They shall become one flesh. Sex, physical intimacy, is a healthy, God-designed part of marriage. Sex is not evil. Sex is also not God. God is God. But sex is a part of marriage. It's part of what God designed. It's part of the way God designed in marriage to increase and celebrate intimacy. 25, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So they're naked. Obviously, this is physical nakedness, but it's more than that. There's layers to that. And we know that because of the rest of the verse where it says they were not ashamed. There's no shame. Emotionally, there's this nakedness that they have with each other, this vulnerability, this openness, and that doesn't result in shame. There's this multi-layered nakedness, physically, emotionally, spiritually. The ability to be open with each other, to be honest with each other, to be unveiled and uncovered with each other. And the result of that is not shame. There's no shame here. This is God's design for marriage. And so, remember, we're kind of in the hyperlink of 127. So we've read this, we've seen that expanded out. Now if we close that extra window and we go back to Genesis 1 and we read the rest of the chapter, after it is good, it is good, it is good, it is not good, here's the solution to what is not good. Then the conclusion in the last verse of Genesis 1, verse 31, God saw everything he had made and behold, it was very good. So creation was good. And then there was something that was not good. Adam was alone. And then God created Eve. And now you have male and female. And now you have marriage. And now it's not just good, it's very good. That fitness for each other, that complementing of each other, that being of the same stuff, very good. The differences that exist, the uniqueness that each partner brings to the relationship, very good. 
Marriage as your primary human relationship as you're, if you're married. Leaving your father and mother in that sense. Very good. Holding fast to your spouse, that commitment. Very good. Sex. Very good. That multi-layered nakedness and that lack of shame. Very good. God designed marriage and it was very good. Unfortunately, that only lasts a few verses. And then you get Genesis 3, when sin enters into the world. And we're going to look at just a few um, verses from, various verses from Genesis 3, skipping a few things. So Genesis 3, a quick summary of the first six verses. There's a serpent, it comes to Eve, it says, did God really tell you you shouldn't do this thing? They have this conversation, the serpent convinces Eve that she actually should do this thing, which is to eat this piece of fruit from a tree that God said don't do it. And Adam and Eve both eat from it. So they sin against God. They go against God's command. They eat from it. And then picking up in verse 7, immediately after they eat from it, what happens? Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. To the woman, the Lord God said, Your desire will be contrary to your husband but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. So we saw the design of marriage, how God intended it to be. But now we see the sin-scarred reality of what marriage is, of what we experience in marriage. And notice the wording here, it's scarred by sin. What God designed still exists. It hasn't been replaced, it hasn't been eliminated, but it's been scarred. It's been tainted and twisted. So those things from Genesis 1 and 2, they still exist, but they don't exist fully as God intended them to. They have been scarred. What does this scarring look like? The first thing they experience after sin is knowledge. The eyes of both of them were open. They understand. But the second thing, they experience shame. They realize they were naked, and what do they do? They don't celebrate. Oh, we're naked. This is great. They sew fig leaves together to cover their nakedness. They're ashamed. The second thing they experience is fear. They heard God walking in the garden, and they hid because they were afraid. And they were afraid because they were naked. Third, conflict. So this relationship that God created, where you've got a man and a woman, and they're created to complement each other, to help each other, to benefit each other, to fit each other, flesh of flesh and bone of bone. Now, look at what God says it's going to be. He says to the woman, your desire will be contrary to your husband and he will rule over you. So before, where it was, we're on the same page, we're working together, we've got the same goal, we're cooperating, this is great. Now it's, oh, I have a desire that's contrary to yours, and I want that desire to be the one, so I'm going to try and impose that on you. But the man's like, oh no, that's not going to happen. I'm going to rule over you. And so this thing that should have been complementary is now this conflict of trying to dominate each other and trying not to be dominated. Conflict is entered in. And then finally, and this at first doesn't seem like it really applies to marriage necessarily, because God's cursing the ground, and it seems more like it just applies to work. But we'll see how that comes back and affects marriage later. But there's pain, and there's futility in work. Work itself is not evil. Work exists before the fall in Genesis 2. But the curse that affects work is work is now futile. Ecclesiastes talks about this when Solomon writes, Vanity, vanity, 
or worthlessness, worthlessness, all is meaningless, all is worthless, all is vanity. And he talks about many things, but work is one of the things. And the idea of vanity or of worthlessness in Ecclesiastes is the idea, if you think of someone who has a cigarette or a cigar, and they suck in on that, and they blow out smoke, and you see this cloud of smoke come out, and you can see it, and it's got some form to it. You can see it. It appears kind of solid. Obviously, it's not. But then the wing catches it, and it just dissipates. And you don't see exactly where it goes, but all of a sudden, it's gone, and it's like it was never there. Or a fog that lays low on the ground that's thick and heavy, and then the sun comes out and shines and just burns it away, that's this idea, this idea of vanity. It's like you have these things and they seem solid and they seem secure and then they're just blown away in the wind. They're dissolved in the sun and they're just gone and you don't really see where they are and you don't really see how they went and it was all kind of meaningless and you can't hold on to it and it's just vanity. It's that idea. So, a summary. What marriage is? The design. A human relationship designed by God to be an answer to human aloneness. Incorporating being a fit for each other, complementing each other, incorporating differences and uniqueness, incorporating the idea of primacy in human relationship, of commitment, of sticking with it, of sex, multi-layered nakedness, a lack of shame. That was the design. The sin-scarred reality, those things still exist, but they've been warped and tainted and scarred by sin. And so now what has entered in? God's design has been scarred by shame, by fear, by conflict, and by pain. That is what marriage is. Now, let's look at what marriage looks like. We're going to move to the New Testament, move to Ephesians 5. If you've heard Ephesians 5 preached before, this is the passage, if you're not familiar, that talks about wives submit to your husbands, husbands love your wives. Some things in this passage that can be difficult to hear. Lots of poor teaching on this passage. You may have been wounded by the things in this passage. That may be because you had bad teaching. That may be because your spouse abused the things in this passage and used them in ungodly ways. Um, so all that to say, remember as we go through this, what we said at the beginning. Marriage is a gift from God. Though The one who finds a spouse obtains favor from the Lord. Marriage is from God, not just something we do on our own. Keep that in mind as we go through. So if you've heard this preach before, most people will start in verse 22, which is a horrible place to start. In Greek, 22 is not even a complete sentence. It's a fragment. You have to back up. So some people will back up to 21, which is better, but that's still incomplete. You have to back up even farther. And if we had time, we'd back up even farther to the, the beginning of Ephesians 5, but we don't have two hours for me to preach, so we're not doing that. So, Ephesians 5, starting in 17, going through the end of the chapter. I'll read it, and then we'll talk through it. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. 
Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So before we go to the next slide and start talking through this passage, one more thing that marriage is. We talked about how marriage is God's design as part of the solution to end human aloneness. But for those of you who are married, you know it is still possible in marriage to feel alone. And sometimes to feel even more alone than you did when you were single. Um, I'm going to quote my mom and my dad in this sermon. And I did ask their permission beforehand, lest I say this quote, and you're like, oh my goodness, I hope they know he's saying that. So I like to ask questions of people. And a few years ago, uh, my brother and his wife who live out of state were in town, and we were all out to dinner, and we were talking. And I asked uh, the four of them who are all married, what's one thing you learned about yourself after getting married that you didn't know before? And my mom said, uh, you know, when I asked her, what's one thing you learned about yourself after getting married? She said, I didn't realize how alone I could feel in marriage. And this is in a healthy marriage. My dad was not abusive to her. He wasn't mistreating her. He, of course, wasn't perfect. He's not Jesus Christ. But she had expectations for what marriage would be and how it would satisfy that were unmet because they weren't realistic and they weren't biblical. And so she had this idea that marriage is going to solve all her problems of aloneness. And then she gets married, and in some ways it solves pieces of that, but not all of it. And so now she's like, well, now I'm married, but this expectation I had is unmet, and now what do I do? A wise man once said, marriage doesn't fix your problems, it just rearranges them. So don't get married thinking marriage is going to solve everything. It's going to shuffle things around. So you might have had some problems that were near the top of the list and it'll shuffle them to the bottom of the deck. But there are some that were near the bottom that you might not have even realized were there that suddenly get shuffled to the top of the deck. Marriage doesn't fix your problems, it rearranges them. God fixes your problems. And we see that in Ephesians 5, we see not only is marriage the things we discussed from Genesis 2, but even more than that, primarily Marriage is designed by God to reflect an image to the world and to us as believers and to the couple, to each other who is married, Jesus Christ and his relationship with his people, with the church. That is primarily what marriage is. Marriage gives you tastes of things. It solves and satisfies in small ways. But it leaves you hungry and it leaves you unfulfilled to some degree. And in that, and in that marriage, that should be something that points you to Jesus and points you to the cross and say, oh, now I'm married and there's intimacy I experienced that I didn't before and that's great, but there's still lack of intimacy. I still want more. Jesus provides that through his death and resurrection. Oh, there was aloneness and now I'm married and now I feel some lack of aloneness. That's been solved to some degree, but I still feel alone sometimes and sometimes more alone than I did before. Jesus solves that. 
Jesus says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. He's with us always. There is no aloneness with Jesus. He says, are you hungry? Are you thirsty? Come to me. Feast on me. Drink of me. I will satisfy you. In ways that marriage can't. Marriage is a great thing. It's a gift from God. But it's not ultimately fulfilling and satisfying. Jesus is ultimately fulfilling and satisfying. And marriage in its best moments images and reflects that in ways that cause us to delight in what God has done, to worship God, to delight in what Jesus Christ gave for us. This mystery is profound, and I am saying it refers to Christ in the church. All right. What marriage looks like, the foundation. Back to 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the word of the Lord is. Foolish here, foolish biblically, when we think of foolish, we think of ignorance or lack of knowledge or lack of information. If someone's foolish, it's like, oh, they didn't get it. They don't understand. Biblically, that's not what foolishness is. If you look at Proverbs, it has three different words it uses to describe people. The words are different depending on your translation, but similar. And most translations use foolish for this one. But in the ESV, the three things are the simple, uh, the scoffers, and the foolish. And that's increasing degrees of badness. Like, you don't want to be any, but it's better to be the simple than a scoffer. And it's better to be a scoffer than a fool. So simple people are what we think of as foolish. People that are just ignorant, they don't get it. So they do wrong, but they don't really realize they're doing wrong. They don't know any better. So there's still punishment for that, but it's a lesser punishment because they acted in ignorance. Then there are scoffers who have an idea of right and wrong and know that there is right and wrong, but they don't necessarily know what the right is and they don't necessarily care to find out. So it's more severe because they realize, well, there's right and wrong, which means sometimes I'm probably not doing what's right, but I'm not going to bother to figure that out. Fools are people who know what's right and actively go against it and pursue what's wrong. They know the right, and they know that it is right. They don't just know that there are these two options and maybe one is right. No, they know that this is the right option. But in their foolishness, they reject that and actively pursue what is wrong. So when Paul says here, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, he's not saying, don't be ignorant, gain the knowledge so you know. He says, no, you know. Don't be foolish, don't reject it. Don't reject what Christ has done. Don't follow something else. So what is the will of the Lord? Verse 18, that you would be filled with the Spirit. Paul contrasts being filled with the Spirit with being drunk on wine, which seems a little strange. Why would he do that? So the idea here is the idea of control, which also, if you've ever wondered why Scripture is against people drinking alcohol, if you're wondering that, you've misread Scripture because Scripture is not against people drinking alcohol. Alcohol is part of God's design. It says he gives it to gladden the hearts of men. The first supernatural feat that Jesus ever performed on earth in his ministry was to take a bunch of water and supernaturally transform it into wine at a wedding because they had run out of wine. And it says that in doing so, he displayed his glory. So alcohol is not the problem, but drunkenness is. And Scripture speaks against drunkenness but the reason is the issue of control. Biblically, what controls you is very important. And so when you're drunk, you are under the control of alcohol. Alcohol is controlling your thoughts. It's controlling your actions. You're not in control of yourself. Paul says, don't do that. Don't be controlled by alcohol. Instead, be controlled by the Spirit. You could phrase that, don't get drunk on wine, but be drunk with the Spirit. Or don't be filled with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. 
Don't be under the control of anything else. Be under the control of the Holy Spirit. That is God's will for you, to be under the control of the Holy Spirit. So you ask, how does that happen? This is the gospel. This is not something you can just do like, oh, okay, I'm going to be under the control of the Holy Spirit. I'll just do that. I'll make it happen. No. Scripture makes it very clear that apart from God and apart from what Jesus Christ did in his death and resurrection, what we are controlled by is sin. If you're here and you're not a believer, you may think you're in control of your own life, but you aren't. Sin controls you. And sin can be very subtle. It can look like you're in control, like you can make decisions, like you can do things and stop doing things, and you're in full control of what you do and what you think, of what you say and how you act. But you are not. Sin controls you. But the good news is it does not have to be that way. You can be controlled by God. You can be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And this is not like being controlled by alcohol, something that's going to force you to do things that are harmful to yourself or against what you want to do that later when you come around, when that control of alcohol wears off and you think, what have I done? When you wake up and you don't even know who you, where you are or who you're with or how you got where you are, that's not what it is to be controlled by the Spirit. To be controlled by the Spirit, look at 19 through 21. What does it look like? Addressing one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Singing, making melody to the Lord. Giving thanks, submitting to one another. These are things that are results of being filled with the Spirit. And there's many more. You can look at, uh, in the book of the Bible, Galatians, it talks about the fruit of the Spirit, things that result from being controlled by God, things like love and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, things that people would say, yeah, those are great things. It's great to be controlled by love, if it's God's love, if it's the love of Christ that he showed us in his death and resurrection. But this is vitally important to what we're going to talk about in the rest of the passage. This is the foundation. The foundation is to be filled with the Spirit. And it's only by being filled with the Spirit that verse 21 is possible. It's only by being filled with the Spirit that we are able to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Without that, this becomes a burden. Without that filling of the Spirit, the command, wives, submit to your husbands, is not something that can be like verses 19 and 20, something that can be joyful and beneficial and life-giving. It becomes this thing that's crushing and weighs you down and feels restrictive. The command of Paul for husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church, without being filled with the Spirit, it is not possible to do that. It becomes something that's restrictive, that's crushing, that is not life-giving, that feels like a burden, that feels like a task to be accomplished. And in the vein of God's curse to Adam, for both men and women, it feels like something that's vanity. You do it, and it works for a little bit, and then it doesn't work. And it's like it dissipated on the wind. And over and over you have this, because marriage has been scarred by sin. This foundation is vitally important. The other piece of the foundation, verse 32. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. So Paul, Paul says all this stuff, Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. I'll expand that a little bit. That's what it looks like. Then it gets to verse 32. Oh, by the way, all that stuff I just said, I wasn't actually talking about marriage. I wasn't actually talking about husbands and wives. I'm talking about Christ and the church. But let's talk about husbands and wives. So the last verse. However, let each of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So he's like, oh yeah, all that stuff I talked about before, yeah, I'm not actually talking about husbands and wives there. But now I will. Verse 33. 
All right, we're going to start with husbands. However, let each of you love his wife as himself. Now, this phrasing seems a little different than what you said before. So as husbands, you might be thinking, oh, this is great. I don't have to love my wife as Christ loved the church. I just love her as I love myself, because how can I ever love the way Christ loved? Unfortunately for you, in verse 33 here, Paul's actually saying the same thing he said before. Look, going back, verses 25 and following. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In the same way, a husband should love their wives as their own bodies. So when Paul says in 33, let each of you love his wife as himself, he's saying what he said before. What it looks like to love your wife as yourself is to love your wife as your own body. For uh, assuming people are healthy, healthy people don't harm their own bodies. They don't hate their own flesh. They don't go around cutting pieces off or permanently damaging or destroying their bodies. They nourish and they cherish their body. And that's what it should look like, husbands, as you love your wives. But doing that is just a reflection of the way Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So this, of course, begs the question, how did Christ love the church? As husbands, if you are called, someday if I'm married, if I am called to love my wife, for you to love your wives as Christ loved the church, it would probably be good to know what that looked like. Paul gives us part of the answer here in uh, Ephesians 5 when he says that Christ gave himself up for the church. So that's Part of what it looks like, that's a big part of what it looks like. We're going to briefly look at four other chunks of Scripture to see a few other things. What, how did Christ love the church? First, Mark 10. Now, this is when the disciples have been having an argument about who's the best and who gets to be like Jesus number one. And then Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to serve, but to, not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. How did Christ love the church? The one who had ultimate power and authority became a servant, became the slave of all. He came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom of many, for many. Husbands, this is part of what it looks like to love your wife as Christ loved the church. To become your wife's servant, to become your wife's slave, to serve your wife, not to be served by her. How else? John 13, 1. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. How does Christ love the church? Faithfully all the way to the end. That's part of what it looks like, husbands, to love your wives. To love them faithfully. To love them for a lifetime. To love them not just when they're lovable or when it's easy, but to love them in those moments where they're unlovable. In those moments when they're sinning and even sinning against you, just as Christ did with the church. To love them to the end. 1 John 3.16, by this we know love, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for each other. How did Christ love the church? Ultimately by dying for it. Husbands, part of your calling as a husband in loving your wife is to die for her. Most likely, this won't mean actually physically dying for her, although that may be something you may be called to do someday. 
Most likely, this will be those daily dines. Dine to yourself. Dine to your own selfish desire. Dine to your own pride. Dine to all those things. Dine to yourself. Laying down your life for your wife. Serving her. Loving her to the end. Laying down your life for her. One more from Mark 8. Now, this is going to seem a little weird, but I'll explain it. Uh, It fits. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of men. Husbands, don't ever say to your wife, Get behind me, Satan. Don't do that. That's not good. That won't be helpful for your marriage. So, going to the next slide, I am going to talk about this, but we'll go to the next slide, kind of summarize, and then talk about it in context. How did Christ love the church? The ruler and Lord with all authority became a servant. He loved them to the end. He laid down his life. He confronted things that distracted from the goal. That's the Mark 8. So husbands, don't tell your wives they're Satan. Don't say, get behind me, Satan. Don't do that. Your wives are not the devil. The devil is the devil. But when there are things that come up in your marriage that distract from the goal, confront those things. It's easy to have easy conversations with your wife. It's easy to love your wife well when loving her well is spending the night making out with her. It's easy to love your wife well when loving your wife well is getting dressed up and going out on a date and having a good time. It's really hard to love your wife well when loving your wife well means entering into a conflict that's happening, knowing it's going to cost you comfort, It's going to cost you a little bit temporarily in the relationship. She might be angry at things you say. And she might take that anger out on you for a while. But are you willing, as Christ did, to make short-term sacrifice for long-term gain? Do you have your eyes on the goal? Husbands, this is what it means to be a man. This is what it means to be a husband of God. The idea of manliness is a big idea, and people, the world has all kinds of extremely poor, unbiblical definitions. You want a biblical definition of what it means to be a man? You look at Jesus Christ, who is male and is the greatest man who's ever lived, the only perfect man. What does it look like, husbands, to be a man in your marriage? This is what it looks like. To lay down your authority and be a servant, not to dominate your wife. To love them faithfully to the end. To lay your life down for them. To die to yourself for them every single day. To confront things that distract from the goal. To have the hard conversations. To have the hard moments. And to work through those moments. In those moments to remind yourself, we're on the same team. I'm not against you. I want the same thing you want. We have the same goal. I love you. You love me. We can work through this. We can come out the other side of this conflict stronger. Our marriage can be more than it is right now going through this in healthy ways. This is manliness. This is a husband who images Christ. Husbands and wives, keep in mind, your husband is not Jesus Christ. Husbands, you are not Jesus Christ. You will not do this perfectly. You will fail. You will fail often. But, This is what we're called to. And remember the foundation. 
The foundation is being filled with the Spirit. The foundation is the gospel. The foundation is the cross. Without those things, this is impossible to do. It cannot be done. You can do it temporarily. You can do it for short periods of time in small ways, but it will fail. You will collapse because you're trying to lay a foundation other than Jesus Christ. And whatever foundation you lay other than Christ is not strong enough to support your marriage, is not strong enough to support this. Only Christ can be that foundation that supports it. Let's talk briefly about the goal. Going back, verse 26. So Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for her. Why did he do that? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Husbands in the room, is this your goal for your marriage? Is your goal for your wife that she would be not in an ultimate Jesus-y, sin-forgiving sense, but in smaller ways that image and reflect that? Is it your goal that you would love your wife in such a way that she would be sanctified, that she would be presented in splendor, that she would be without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish, that she would be increased in holiness? Or is your goal that marriage would be easy? That marriage would be more about just satisfying you, about doing the minimum to get by, about kind of sustaining the relationship. That's not the biblical goal of marriage. That's not what Christ does for us. He doesn't come and say, eh, I'll give you just enough to get by. We'll do a little bit. No. He loves us to the end. He loves us to death and back. Is this your goal, husbands? Remember the foundation. This goal is not achievable without the foundation of the gospel, without the foundation of the cross. But with that foundation, it is achievable. Because God's the one who's doing all the heavy lifting. He's the one that the foundation is built on. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Wives, second half of verse 33. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. Going back, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. A few qualifiers for this. When it says wives should submit in everything to their husbands, that does not include sin. That does not include things that go against what God says. God is ultimately the one we all submit to. And anyone, whether it's your spouse, whether it's one of us as elders, God forbid preaching heresy from the pulpit, whether it's a friend or a trusted voice in your life spiritually, anyone who tells you you need to do things that are contrary to what God says need to be done, you do not listen to that. You listen to God. Always. God always trumps people. So it does not include sin. It does not include things that are contrary to the gospel. Also, in today's world, throughout the world, not just today, but there are issues of safety and security. This does also not mean if your husband is abusing you, if he's beating you up every day, if he's harming your children, that does not mean, oh, I'm just going to stay and submit. I'm just going to get beat up every day. I'm just going to watch my kids beat up because that's what Scripture tells me to do. That is not what this means. 
That is not what this means. A husband who does that is absolutely not loving you as Christ loved the church. In no way is that loving. In no way is that what Jesus Christ did. In no way is that laying down authority. In no way is that loving to the end. In no way is that dying to yourself. In no way is that focusing on the goal that God has laid down. That is not what this means. Also, wives submitting to husbands does not mean wives are of less worth than husbands. It does not mean women are of less worth than men. We see that in Genesis 1, that both men and women are equally created in God's image. When God creates woman, that expanded view in Genesis 2, he makes a, he, Eve is called a helper, which can seem like a word that implies inferiority, but it's not. Jesus is called our helper. The Holy Spirit is called our helper. And Jesus is certainly not inferior. And the Holy Spirit is not inferior. The husband is the head of the wife, not because he's better, not because he's superior, but because marriage images Christ's relationship with us. And Christ is superior to us. Now, this is where it breaks down a little bit, because Christ actually is superior to us in every way. And that is not true of husbands and wives. So husbands have headship in marriage. They have a role of leading, the role of being that Christ figure. But not because they, like Jesus Christ, are perfect or they, like Jesus Christ, are superior. It's because that's how God designed it. That men and women at Hiawatha, we say and we believe, men and women are equal in worth, equal in value. In all ways, across the board, they're equal in worth and value. But roles in marriage and in certain aspects of life are different because God has designed men and women differently. They complement each other. Hiawatha is what we call complementarian, which does not mean you tell people, oh, that's a lovely shirt you're wearing today. Not what complementarian means. Although go ahead and compliment each other. It means we believe that there's equal worth, but there's difference in role, and that those differences in role are God-designed to complement each other. This is in contrast to what they call egalitarian, which says there's really no difference between male and female. Maybe physical differences, but other than that, there's really no difference. Men and women are identical. And so there should be no difference in role in any sphere of life. There should be no difference at all. But that's not what Scripture shows. That's not what creation shows in Genesis 1 and 2. That's not what Ephesians 5 shows. That's not what the rest of Scripture shows. Unfortunately, this has often been used to abuse women, to dominate women. But the problem there is not with God's word, it's with the men. The problem is with sin that has scarred marriage. Authority and power are not the problem. Abuse and misuse of it are. So the scale is not you've got abuse of authority and power on one end, and on the other end you just jettison all power and authority and everything's just equal. That's not a valid scale. The scale is you've got abuse of power and authority on one end, and on the other end you have Jesus' example of power and authority used to serve, not to dominate. Used for the other's good, not to satisfy self-interest. Obviously, as human men, as human husbands, we will not do that perfectly. But that's the scale. So having said that, so what's it look like, wives, to respect your husbands, to submit to your husband? We're going to go to 1 Peter 3 and read some verses which may, at first reading, seem extremely offensive. But give me a minute to explain. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 5. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if, they, if some do not obey the word, 
They may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So first, what's respect, what's submission look like? Respectful and pure conduct towards your husband. Going on, verse 3, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands. Now, Peter is not saying here, although it appears he is very explicitly, he is not saying here, women, it's wrong to braid your hair. It's wrong to do things with your hair to look beautiful. It's wrong to wear jewelry. It's wrong to put on something fancy to go out and get dressed up. It's wrong to use makeup. He is not saying those things are wrong. Does anyone know the word translated adorning here, what that word is in Greek? The word is cosmos, like the cosmos, the universe. What Peter's saying here is not, women, don't do these things, it's bad. He's saying, women, don't make these external things your cosmos. Don't make these things your universe. Don't make these things the thing around which all other things revolve. Don't make these the cosmos, the universe, that is then filled with all other things. Don't make these the foundation. Don't make these the center. Don't make these the things around which all else revolves. And why not? Look at verse 4. Because those things are perishable. And we know that, right? As a woman, you buy a dress that you love, that complements your figure well, and you put it on, but what happens? It goes out of style. Or eventually you wear it enough and it wears out. It's perishable. It doesn't last. You put on gold jewelry, but eventually you wear it enough, it breaks. The clasp breaks, a piece of it breaks, or it tarnishes, it loses some of its luster. These things are perishable. Let your adorning, let your cosmos be that which is imperishable. The beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Again, this is not Peter saying, now women, you can't ever be sassy. You can't be feisty. You can't have opinions. You can't disagree with your husbands. You can't have real conversations. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, let the cosmos of your character be gentle and quiet. Because in doing that, you respect your husbands and that will win them over. Proverbs says, you attract more with honey than you do with oil. Sweetness disarms. Sweetness attracts. So it's not saying, women, don't ever wear jewelry. Don't ever dress up. Just be gentle. Just be quiet. Don't speak. Don't have opinions. It's not saying any of those things. It's saying, don't let those things be the cosmos that you build everything else around. As a wife, respecting your husband, submitting to your husband, let the cosmos be the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Let it be respectful and pure conduct. These things are precious in God's sight. They're not weak. They're not futile. They're precious. They're valuable. Look at verse 5. This is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. Again, that foundation, hope in God. The foundation of building on being filled with the Spirit. That's the only thing that makes this possible. 1 Peter 3 goes on to say, the women who hoped in God, they did this, 
And this helped them not to fear in situations where there were things to fear. And you may read this, and your experience, remembering how sin has been tainted, may be, this makes me a little afraid. Because what if I do this, and my husband uses it, and abuses it, and then dominates, and then doesn't love well? The only way this is possible is hoping in God. Not hoping in your husband that he'll always respond well, because he won't always respond well. You hope in God. You hope in that foundation of being filled with the Spirit. You hope in the cross and the gospel. That is what marriage looks like. Women, wives in the room, respect your husbands. Submit to them. Not because you're of lesser worth. Not because you're of lesser value. Not because you don't have as much to add or contribute to the marriage. But because of how it images Christ's relationship with the church. Because of how doing that can win your husband over. Because of how doing that makes your cosmos something that is imperishable, not something that wears out and fails. All right, what marriage looks like, a summary. The foundation, the will of the Lord, is that we would be filled with and controlled by the Holy Spirit, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. For husbands, For men who are married, the foundation looks like loving your wife like Christ loved the church, giving yourself up for her, dying to yourself for her every day. For women, for the married women in the room, the foundation looks like respecting and submitting to your husband, and in so doing, having a cosmos that's imperishable, that reflects, excuse me, that reflects the gospel and that wins your husband over. And remember, what is the goal of this? The goal, sanctification, cleansing, being presented in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, holy and without blemish, both physically in the human marriage, but ultimately that the gospel would be proclaimed as marriages reflect Christ's relationship with the church. As marriages reflect that that is what Christ is doing for us in far greater ways than we can ever do for each other. He is sanctifying us. He's cleansing us. He has sanctified us and he has cleansed us. He is presenting us to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or blemish or any such thing, in holiness. That is what marriage looks like. Now, there's a ton more we could cover. So, When I prepare a sermon, I average about two minutes per PowerPoint slide, give or take, so I can estimate how long my sermon's going to be once the PowerPoint's done. My first draft, so to speak, of this sermon was over two and a half hours long. And I cut it down to an hour, and then it went back up to an hour and a half, and now it's back down. And I'm already over a bit and pushing the limit. So there's a ton more to say, but there just isn't time. There's a ton more I wanted to talk about, but there isn't time. For those of you in community groups, some of that will make it into the leader's guide for this week, and so you'll be able to discuss some of that if you want. But I am going to take a few more minutes and talk very briefly about sexual sin. This is a series on sex, uh, gender, marriage, and the gospel. Now, there's going to be a sermon in two weeks about sexual sin, so I'm going to touch on it briefly because there's going to be a whole sermon covering that. There's a lot of other things to cover in terms of submission and loving and how that looks in other spheres outside of marriage, but that's also going to be covered in another sermon in the series, which is why I didn't cover it. But briefly, we're going to talk about sexual sin because it's such a big deal. 
we're going to talk about foxes and fleeing. Hebrews 13.4. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. First thing we're going to do is level the playing field. Matthew 5, 27 and 28. You have heard it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Romans 3, 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Leveling the playing field. Every man in this room is an adulterer. Any man who comes up to me after the service and says, I've never looked at a woman with lustful intent, I'll open up 1 John 1 and say, you are a liar, and you're also calling God a liar in saying that. We are all adulterers. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sexual sin is something that everyone in this room deals with. Everyone in this room has committed sexual sin. Now, whether that's in acts or whether that's in thoughts or in words, all of us have. This is a problem for all of us. But remember Romans 3.24. We are all justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. For sexual sin, like all sin, there is redemption in Christ Jesus. There is grace. For those of you where sexual sin has entered in and damaged your marriage and you feel like your marriage is falling apart and might be on the brink of being over, there is no sin that's too big for God's grace. There is no sin that's too big for the cross. There is no marriage that God cannot salvage. It will not be easy. It is, lot, it is hard work. It takes a long time, but it can be done. There is a lot of pain to work through. There is a lot of hurt. There is trust to rebuild, but it can be done. The gospel is that big. All of us have sexual sin, and for all of us, that sin can be laid at the foot of the cross. There is redemption. There is healing. There is restoration of relationship. Remember that. All right. So we've leveled the playing field. Now we're going to look at two verses very briefly. One from 1 Corinthians and one from Song of Solomon. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Flee sexual immorality might not sound shocking when you first read it, but if you compare it to what Scripture says to do with other things in Scripture, this is unique. For instance, Scripture tells us to resist the devil. It says, humble yourself before God, and in that resist the devil, he will flee from you. You don't have to run away from Satan, you resist him and he runs from you. In Ephesians 6, it says, stand firm in the evil day, wearing the armor of God, and you will prevail, you will stand firm. Again, we don't run away, we stand firm against that, in God's armor and in his strength, and we resist and we prevail, and it's destroyed. Scripture talks about standing firm against bad doctrine. When people proclaim blasphemy, we don't run from that. We stand against it and we defeat it. It talks about in Matthew, Jesus, or Peter makes a proclamation of Jesus. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, yes, you have spoken truly. And on that declaration, I'm going to build the church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Again, an image, what are gates? They just stand there. They're stationary. They can't move. They're not offensive. They're defensive. And what does the Bible say that the church does? It says they storm those gates and tear them down. So many other things. Scripture says resist, stand firm, be steadfast, overcome. 
And what does it say about sexual immorality? It does not say stand firm. It does not say resist. It does not say in prayer, in the power of the word, in the armor of God, fight against this. It says run away. It says to Christians, run away from sexual immorality. Those of you who are struggling with sexual sin and sexual addiction, the primary reason that you cannot overcome it is not this. The primary reason is the gospel. The gospel is not what you are looking to. The gospel is not what you are drawing power from. You are not filled with the Spirit. But secondarily, one of the main reasons that sexual sin is not overcome is because we do not run away with it. Because we play with it. Because we allow it to tempt us. Because we allow it in small ways to sneak in. Because we think it's like so many other things that we can resist. Ultimately, you cannot resist sexual sin to the end. Run away from it. And that, this could be a whole sermon in itself. There's a ton of reasons for that. It has to do with God's design for sex and how that's different and how sexual sin is different than other sins because of how sex is incorporated into the good design of God's, God's good design for marriage. Notice, it doesn't say flee sex. It doesn't say all sex is sexual immorality. It says flee sexual immorality. If you're married, don't flee from sex with your spouse. That's not immorality. Run towards that. That's a good thing. If you're not married and you wish to be someday, don't think to yourself, oh, all sex is immorality. I have to rid myself of this desire for sex. No, desire for sex is not sin. What's done with it is sinful or not sinful. But sexual immorality, run away from it. The second part from Song of Solomon 2, 15 Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that spoil the vineyards, for our vineyards are in blossom. Uh, So, I was very sad. I had to cut like 30 minutes worth of stuff from Song of Solomon. It was all really good, but there wasn't time. But anyway, the vineyard in this verse, uh, it's the man talking to the woman, and the vineyard is their relationship. And their relationship is like a grapevine in a vineyard. It's growing. It's flourishing. It's in bloom. A couple things about sexual sin and sexual immorality that we can take from this verse. One, don't think that sexual sin and temptation only comes when your marriage is having difficulty. Look at the, uh, the state of their marriage here. The vineyard is in blossom. It's fully bloomed and it's producing fruit. It's at the height of what it's intended to be. And in that state, foxes are coming in to eat the, vine, to eat the grapes on the vineyard to damage the vineyard, to damage the relationship. Sexual sin does not only come in when your marriage is in trouble. It comes in when your marriage is going great, when it's exactly what it's supposed to be. Second, catch the foxes when they're little. It's easy to look at a little fox and say, oh, it's so cute. Oh, it's no big deal. Like, it'll eat a few grapes off the vine, but it's so small, it can't do that much damage. But the small foxes grow. And the small fox's hunger increases. And what you thought would only eat a few grapes off the vine and the vine would stay intact suddenly becomes something much more destructive. And you're left with vines that have withered and died and there are no grapes left. Sexual sin works this way. It starts small and you think, oh, it's cute. Oh, I know it's not right, but it's really not that big a deal. It's just a small thing. It's not good, but it's not going to damage the relationship overall. It's not going to harm the marriage. It's just this little thing. But it grows, and it takes over. And all of a sudden, 
You're left holding the remains of a marriage that's withering away and dying because you didn't catch the foxes when they were small. Husbands and wives, let your marriage be held in honor. Let your marriage bed be undefiled. Flee sexual immorality through the foundation of the gospel and catch the foxes when they're little. Conclusion. Marriage is God's idea and design. It's not something that was just designed for society because it had benefits. It's not something people just came up with. Marriage is God's design and design. Marriage is primarily about Jesus, not primarily about you. Marriage benefits us. It's for our benefit. But your marriage is not primarily about you. It's about Jesus Christ and the gospel. And that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. Because that frees you from the pressure of having to make your marriage look a certain way because it's all about you. Or having it be a certain way because it's all about you. It's all about Jesus. Husbands, worship God and image the gospel in your marriage by loving your wife as Christ loved the church. Remembering Romans 3.24, that when you failed, you are justified by his grace as a gift and there is redemption through Jesus Christ. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. Wives, worship God and image the gospel in your marriage by respecting and submitting to your husband. And finally, remember that marriage is not ultimately fulfilling. Ultimately, it points to Jesus, the ultimate lover, the ultimate spouse, the one who ultimately satisfies all desire. Let's pray.